0: It's time for Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070, joined by Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Good morning, Michael. Pleasure as always. Good morning. Great to be here. Some interesting stories on the docket
1: this week, including one involving
0: cryptocurrency
1: Bitcoin. Yes, indeed. So this is a uh, a B.C. Supreme Court action, which was brought by a a plaintiff uh, alleging that another man had... Uh, agreed to purchase 50 Bitcoin from him at a price of $10,700 per Bitcoin for a total of $535,000 Canadian. Uh, And then he alleges that the person he's suing failed to pay, Uh, like didn't go through with the the agreement. That's what it sounds like anyways. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, and the, the decision which was just released deals with a couple of procedural issues that I think are important for people to know about if they ever wind up in uh, some dispute over Bitcoin or something else, for that matter. So it sounds like the the underlying legal dispute here appears to be whether the person being sued had made this agreement to buy the Bitcoin uh, in his personal capacity or, on the other hand, Uh, on behalf of a corporation, which has now been wound up, (laughs) no longer exists. Um, And that's an important distinction. Um, If a decision or a contract is entered into by a corporation, you can't sue uh, the individual. Like, for example, if uh, your Macintosh computer breaks down, uh, you're not going to be successful uh, in suing the president of Apple, right? Because plainly you didn't buy it from him personally, You bought it from Apple Computers, right? That would be be where your cost of action would be. Uh, But particularly with small companies and companies where there's only one person involved with it, there can be room for real dispute about uh, who is this uh, person or entity that's entering into the contract, the one-man company or the one man. And so that's the underlying issue. Um, and the other thing people should be aware of, if you wind up in uh, any kind of a uh, uh, civil dispute with somebody and you're suing, is that one of the obligations that both parties have, the plaintiff and the defendant in a civil claim, is to exchange all relevant documents with, with each other. And that's quite the opposite of how, for example, a criminal case would proceed, right? If you were charged with an offence, you've got the right to remain silent, you generally speaking, don't have to turn over or say anything, right? Yes, yes. But when you're having a dispute over money, uh, the watchword there is transparency. The obligations under the rules of court provide that each party is required to turn over to the other uh, all documents they have in their possession that relates to the claim, so that we can get to the bottom of issues like, do you owe $50,000 for these bitcoins, <laughs> yes. right? Was there a, a promise to buy those things or a contract to buy those things? And so the application which was just made in this uh, case concerning the $50,000 in Bitcoin um, was over the fact that the uh, person who was being sued, the man who says, no, I didn't do it on my own account, this was a, on behalf of a defunct corporation, was dragging his feet in terms of providing what's called a list of documents setting out all the documents in his possession that might be relevant to the claim
0: indeed an affidavit Uh, of records yes
1: yeah and so here the court um, ordered that uh, that be done and ordered as well that the man being sued actually provide an affidavit swearing that he's turned over everything in his possession that relates to the claim because here there seem to be some obvious omissions things like bank records or a user agreement various other things so they're going to require the man to swear an affidavit saying that's indeed all I have that has anything to do with this. Uh, because if you uh, swear a false affidavit, it amounts to perjuring yourself. And there can be very serious consequences for that. Yes. The irony of all of this thing is I <laughs> look at this uh, uh, claim. All of these uh, events transpired uh, back in 2019. Uh, and at the time, the value of a Bitcoin, or at least the price of a Bitcoin, I suppose we can argue about whether it has any value at all, with $10,700. The current value of a Bitcoin uh, is $15,629. So it it sounds like a little bit ironic that no doubt there would have been ups and downs and dips and peaks and valleys between those two times, uh, but uh, it uh, would appear to be a a case uh, where the man had simply held on. Uh, Bitcoins are now worth uh, well more than what they were worth back at the time when he claims that the uh, other person didn't follow through to buy them. Uh, for less than they're selling for now. Um, so that's the fact pattern, and, uh, you know, we can all scratch our heads about whether you should be paying $15,629 for a long string of numbers, but it would appear that there are many people prepared to do that. Interesting. It's all about
0: yeah. confidence, I suppose. One will pay what they are confident, someone else will pay them for, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's a circular
1: issue where there really is no beginning and end, I suppose. No, and I suppose the same thing you can say about uh, all kinds of other things in this world, right The uh, strips of paper you've got in your wallet don't have any particular intrinsic intrinsic value. Uh, you only view them as having value because you think other people are prepared to accept them in exchange for things you actually want precisely and so if people are prepared to exchange things of value to you for strings of numbers on your computer, well, that has value um, and really, you just need to ask yourself, are other people <laughs> do other people think? this thing has value and if so uh, you've got yourself a a currency or a bitcoin or a share or a a gold medal or whatever else you uh, might want to be exchanging really at the end of the day uh, it all turns on uh, what other people are prepared to pay for it fascinating so how did this story end or do we know yet well the the litigation isn't concluded what's happened is that the man who claimed that uh, no no i just did this on behalf of my defunct company uh, I think it was called the Einstein Exchange Incorporated, um, has been ordered to turn over uh, a full list of all the documents he has, an affidavit confirming that they're so. Uh, and uh, I think the idea is that once those are exchanged, uh, it may make it more clear uh, about whether this uh, person was operating in his own capacity uh, or operating uh, as a uh, on behalf of Einstein Exchange, Inc., and if it's the latter, uh, none of this is going to much matter because Einstein Exchange Inc. Uh, ceased to operate in October of 2019.
0: Fascinating situation. Next story.
1: Uh, we have
0: an, an improper police stop.
1: What happened here? Yeah, there, there are a few things in this case that I think are important for people to, to know about. Um, the, the the case itself involved a, a person being or a vehicle being stopped that had two people in it, a driver and a passenger. Um, and ultimately the uh, passenger in the car was charged with a bunch of offenses relating to guns and ammunition that were found in the car. Oh. But the, uh, the issue in the uh, case involved the police authority to stop and search the vehicle. Uh, and the reason why I think that's important for people to know about um, is that uh, a lot of people I talk to have the uh, mistaken view that The police aren't permitted to stop a vehicle unless you've done something wrong, like you're speeding or gone through a stop sign or something. And that's not so. Uh, The police actually have the authority to stop uh, a vehicle at any time to ensure things like compliance with the Motor Vehicle Act. Does the driver have a license? Yes. What's the mechanical fitness of the car? Is the driver sober? Uh, And you don't need to wait to witness a violation in order to stop a car to check those things. Otherwise, you could drive around drunk with no license and no insurance forever unless you went through a stop sign or something, and that's not the state of the law. But here's the really important distinction. While the police are permitted to stop any vehicle at any time for those purposes, they are not permitted to stop a vehicle for the purpose of, uh, sort of uh, criminal investigation, right? That's a very different thing. Um, and here, the the critical evidence uh, was that uh, the police officer who stopped the vehicle, the judge found did not stop the vehicle uh, for one of those legitimate motor vehicle purposes, checking for license, sobriety, insurance, mechanical fitness, all those things. Instead, the judge found that the police officer that stopped the car knew who the driver was, believed him to be as sort of a bad guy with a criminal record, and believed uh, that the police officer stopped the car to investigate this person criminally, not to check on motor vehicle-related matters. Um, and the uh, part of the reason the judge eventually came to that uh, conclusion was that the officers evidence who initiated the stop Differed in very fundamental ways from another police officer uh, who was on the scene, was called there to sort of assist with this uh, transaction. Uh, and the judge, having heard the evidence from both of these people and having heard the original police officer cross-examined, reluctantly concluded that um, they were unable to accept the evidence of the police officer that uh, initiated the original stop. Uh, and said, in short, I have particular concerns about the reliability of the constable's evidence. And because the judge found uh, that the officer who initiated the stop was unreliable and rejected that officer's evidence because it contradicted what the other officer said uh, and uh, when he was cross-examined, it became clear that what was going on here was not just a traffic stop, the judge found that the police officer who stopped the car wasn't doing it for a legitimate motor vehicle purpose, but was instead uh, arbitrarily stopping this car on a hunch based on the reputation of the driver of the car. And as a result, the judge found that the detention was arbitrary, was unlawful, and then ultimately uh, the judge came to the conclusion that the evidence that was found in the car and that resulted in the passenger being charged had to be excluded from the trial. Um, and in Canada that's a two-step process right a judge would first have to determine that there was a breach of somebody's constitutional rights in this case rights including a right to be free from being arbitrarily detained by the police but the judge then has to do a separate analysis to determine whether evidence which was found as a result of a charter breach should be excluded from the trial and not considered Um, and the fundamental question a judge needs to ask himself is would admitting that evidence into the trial bring the administration of justice into disrepute right you know would a well informed reasonable person being informed of what caused, what happened here uh, would it bring the administration of justice into disrepute to know that the crown was permitted to use the evidence that was obtained in that unconstitutional way yeah and so you can imagine a circumstance where let's say there was some harmless error or some complete uh, error like let's say the police get a search warrant for a house but type the wrong number on the search warrant application like the wrong address is typed on there somebody puts a 7 rather than a 3 but everything else was in order it was just an innocent mistake well in that kind of a case it's very likely the evidence would nonetheless be admitted even though there really was no warrant to search the house they searched, right? Yes. But here, uh, the important elements included the fact that the judge concluded the police officer was effectively lying uh, about why he was doing what he was doing uh, and lying on numerous points about it uh, because that officer's evidence was contradicted by the other officer who was present. Um, And that made what happened here much more serious, Because it wasn't simply an innocent mistake on the part of the police officer. It was, the judge concluded, um, something which was knowing, willful, and then the officer showed up in court and fibbed about what was going on. Um, And all of that made what occurred much more serious uh, and led to the ultimate conclusion that even though um, things like uh, guns and ammunition and so on are pretty serious matters, the judge concluded that look, if you tell a member of the public that a police officer has uh, unlawfully stopped a vehicle and then come to court and fibbed about what he was doing and why, um, they're not going to think much of the justice system if they just say, well, that's fine, Uh, carry on, we can use everything we got in that way. Um, And so the result of this uh, is that uh, the evidence which was uh, located when the car was ultimately searched uh, is excluded, and the passenger who was uh, charged with those offenses uh, will be acquitted. Um, And so I I suppose the the key takeaways for members of the public would include the police can stop you at any time to make sure you're sober and got your driver's license and insurance, but cannot stop you to just uh, investigate a hunch because they think you might be a bad guy uh, and to see whether you're uh, engaged in any uh, criminal activity. Uh, And the other takeaway, I suppose, if you are a police officer is you had better think very carefully about being candid when you come to court and testify particularly when there's another officer there who is uh, not likely to want to show up and perjure themselves (laughs) in exactly the same way you are. Um, And so uh, it brings into sharp relief uh, just how much the justice system relies, particularly on professional witnesses like police, uh, to show up and be truthful and candid uh, about what they're doing. And if they're not... Um, it's going to uh, have this kind of result, uh, which uh, ultimately is the exclusion of evidence and the end of what otherwise might have been a a significant uh, prosecution.
0: Let's take our break. Michael Mulligan will continue offering us the benefit of his analysis and insight. Legally speaking, continues right after this. All right, we're back on the air here with CFAX 1070 as we continue with Legally Speaking. Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defence Lawyers. I have a text question, Michael, an audience member inquiring as to what ultimately happened with the guns and ammunition with respect to the case we just discussed.
1: Well, the guns and ammunition were found by the judge to be inadmissible, which means that the um, prosecution would not be able to use the guns or the ammunition or indeed some statements that were made by... The accused with respect to those things, uh, because they were obtained uh, in an unconstitutional way, and the judge concluded that permitting those things to be used as evidence would bring the administration of justice into disrepute. Now, the, if the question is sort of well, then what happens with these things? Yes, um, it's not set out in the decision, but I can tell you what would occur. Mm-hmm. Um, what would occur is that because some of those things would be of their own accord unlawful to possess right? Like, uh, if you don't have the required license, you can't have a handgun, right? Uh, Yes. uh, And so things which would be unlawful to possess uh, would not be returned to somebody because that would amount to uh, uh, an offense to possess it. And the same thing would occur, for example, if uh, in a drug case the judge found that uh, let's say the police came into your home without a warrant, searched through your underwear drawer and managed to find uh, some cocaine, for example, right? Yes. And the judge found that that warrantless search was unlawful. The evidence can't be admitted into uh, trial. Uh, the result is not, here's your brick of cocaine back, uh, because uh, you taking possession of that thing would uh, it, it constitute a criminal offense. And so the, the practical result at the end of a uh, decision like that is that the drugs or a, a gun that would be unlawful to possess, um, at least without special permitting, uh, would be uh, destroyed. That's the, the ultimate outcome is not going to be handing the person uh, a handgun and a bunch of ammunition uh, or, indeed, in a drug case, handing them back a, uh, a brick of cocaine. Indeed. Uh, the, the practical result is going to be the person would be found not guilty because the evidence of the offence is not admissible, uh, but uh, they're not going to be handed back the thing which would itself constitute an offence to possess.
0: Yeah, I guess that would be, what would that be, entrapment? Or what would that be if they tried to prosecute that? You give somebody their drugs back and then charge them with a fresh offense because they're now in possession of a, of a prohibited substance
1: completely unrelated to the original infraction. Yeah, I, I suppose if you're the bold enough person to stomach up at the police station and <laughs> say, hello, may I have my brick of cocaine back? I suppose if the uh, <laughs> I suppose if police wanted to, here you are and you're under <laughs> arrest. <laughs> thank, you for, thank you for coming out. <laughs> uh,
0: the, the next case, now, now you have helped us understand, and, and I think all of us intuitively understand, that family law cases can be among the most difficult, given the profound emotional attachments that all of us have to our children and our loved ones and the disputes that can arise from that. Couple with that, the complications of civil law changing from province to province, or in this case, I'm reading, a wealthy couple sailing around the world. How does family law
1: work with that? In a really complicated way, would be the answer. Uh, and the, the first complication in, the, in this case that we're talking about it involves the issue of jurisdiction, sort of whether, in this case, the British Columbia Court uh, could and then should uh, try to decide the family case. Uh, and the family case here involved a, a problem which I suppose is a nice one for somebody to have. Um, it was a couple who met uh, in Portugal. Uh, at least one of them was very, quite wealthy, I think the man. Uh, and they spent seven of the last uh, ten years or so sailing around the world going to various places New Zealand and Mexico and uh, Portugal uh, and Vancouver, right? Yes, uh, and uh, both of these people had some connection to Vancouver. I think the uh, plaintiff was asking for spousal support uh, and some division of property had a condominium there, and they did spend some time in Vancouver, but uh, because of their lifestyle, uh, they had uh, uh, houses in uh, both in Vancouver and Mexico and in Portugal, um, and so when this relationship eventually ended, um, the uh, plaintiff, so, seeking and seeking, plaintiff seeking the uh, division of property and spousal support uh, so she could maintain some version of this lifestyle, I suppose. Um, the first issue that arose in the case that was just decided is, does the B.C. court have jurisdiction over any of this stuff? Because they're all over the world. Yeah. Um, and so the jurisdictional question that the court has to first of all ask themselves is, whether there is, this is the language, a real and substantial connection uh, between British Columbia and the factual underpinning of the case. And then there are a, a, a few things which can presumptively provide that real and substantial connection. They would include whether their most recent uh, common uh, residence was in British Columbia, the spouses. Here, that wasn't the case. At the time, the relationship broke down. The man was living on the boat, and the woman was living in her house in Portugal. Um uh, but one of the things here did exist, which was, A, that their property that's the subject of the proceeding is located in British Columbia. Now, that one, uh, there was property in British Columbia. Uh, the man had a investment account with some $4 million in it um, in B.C., uh, and I believe he owned a uh, some property here, and so there were assets here, um, and... Uh, there was enough, the court found, uh, of a connection to British Columbia, uh, including things like um, the woman owned a condominium here that her daughter was living in, the man came back here for some medical treatment at one point and was living here, and these assets were here. At least some of the man's assets were in British Columbia. And all of those things amounted to the court found a real and substantial connection uh, between this couple and this or this claim and the things that were being fought over, and the court therefore found that they did have jurisdiction to deal with it. But the second part of the test for a court is whether British Columbia would be, they use Latin for it, but the most convenient um, forum for the litigation. Hmm. You can have a circumstance where, yes, there is a real connection here, for example, the investment account, but everyone lives in Portugal, everything else is in Portugal, they're in Portugal. It's awfully inconvenient to be dealing with this in... Uh, British Columbia, you know, what are we doing? Are we having everyone fly over here? And yeah. all the witnesses, that doesn't make any sense. And the court also wants to avoid things like, here's a problem for you, inconsistent orders between different jurisdictions. Like yeah. What happens if the court of Portugal says she gets the boat and the court of British Columbia says he gets the boat? Who gets the boat? And so you want to avoid duplicate proceedings, you want to avoid inconsistent decisions. Uh, but here, based on a review of all of the factors, including the fact that the the uh, woman had a, a condominium here, her daughter lived here, he had some connection here and had come back here for medical treatment, and there some of the assets are here, uh, and both of them, while they're both from Portugal, had spent a large portion of their lives in British Columbia, That the court concluded that there is both a real and substantial connection, so the court could deal with it, and concluded that British Columbia was a convenient place for this to be litigated. And so we haven't decided who's getting the sailboat yet or who gets the investment account or any of those things, but the court has decided that the case can go ahead and can go ahead in British Columbia. So. There uh, we have there it. it is. I must say, reading the thing over, I, it sounds like a pretty nice way to spend seven years traveling around on a sailboat to Portugal and Mexico and New Zealand. But uh, that seems to have come to a screeching halt, and they can now spend probably some equivalent period of time figuring out who gets the boat. Indeed.
0: Michael Mulligan, out of time, but a pleasure as always. Thank you
1: so much. Thank you. Always enjoy it. Have All a right, great take day. Take
0: care. Michael Mulligan every Thursday during the second half of our second hour on CFAX 1070 Legally Speaking.